0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, um, we want to be shaped. We want to be formed. We want to be informed, shaped, formed by your word. We want to be instructed. We continue to worship now by attending to your scriptures. They are a lifeline. They are our bread. Um, they are our food. Uh, a lot of opinions, lots of facts, lots of surveys, lots of studies. Um, Lots of teaching one way or another in our society, but uh, we know where to go for truth. We know where to go for the standard by which everything else is to be discerned and judged. And we come now to your word. Help us to receive it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see the title there, The King Who Ditched His Faith. Uh, Today's passage... Uh, leads us to consider the possibility of losing our religion, the possibility of deconverting, if you will, from Christianity, of falling away from the faith. How do we not do that? We're going to look at an example of one who fell away, and then we'll talk about some measures to stay uh, steadfast, to remain steadfast. Faithful to the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles chapter 24. Second Chronicles chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, it's page 403. Page 403. Where are you doing that? I'm going to. <coughs> Excuse me. Second Chronicles chapter 24 is an account of a man named Joash. He was a king. He was the king of Judah. Uh, Who is Joash? He is one of two boy kings in scripture. Joash became king when he was seven years old. Uh, And Josiah, and we're going to look at Josiah next week, uh, Lord willing. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. But today we're looking at Joash. Joash, in terms of his ancestry, in terms of his recent ancestry to him, His ancestry is soaked in blood. Here's a a family tree of Joash. We start with King David, um, who was uh, the great king, if you will, over the United Kingdom of uh, uh, Judah and Israel. And then after him was Solomon, his son. And then uh, a few generations down, we come to Jehoshaphat. And some of you are familiar with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. After him, his son Jehoram reigned. Uh, Jehoram would be Joash's grandfather. Um, Jehoram was evil, and he was unpopular. Um, when Jehoram assumed the throne, he eliminated all of his brothers, so all of Jehoshaphat's uh, other children. Um, and uh, Jehoram, when he passed away, the scripture records, he passed away to no one's regret. That's the way the scripture puts it. I thought, what a great epitaph. Um, after Jehoram, his son Ahaziah reigned. Ahaziah was evil in the Lord's eyes. He was Joash's father. He only reigned one year. He was the youngest in his family uh, of, of Jehoram's children. He was the youngest, and when he was a boy, all of the rest of his siblings were eliminated uh, not uh, by, by enemies who came in and attacked, and Ahaziah only was spared. But as I said, he reigned for one year, and then he died um, he was uh, he was killed by Jehu of Israel after Ahaziah died then Ahaziah's mother this would be jo- Joash's grandmother Athaliah took the throne and um, she eliminated all of her grandsons she wanted no threats to the throne she was likely the daughter of Uh, She was likely the daughter of Jezebel. You may be familiar with Jezebel from Scripture. So it makes no surprise to learn that Athaliah maintained and promoted the religion of Baal, the worship of Baal in Judah. Well, when she was on her rage against her grandchildren, uh, Joash was spared. He was a baby, um, and his aunt Jehoshabah scooped him up and hid him. Jehoshaba is married to a priest whose name is Jehoiada. So Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat took care of and hid baby Joash for the first seven years of his life from grandma. Um, when When Joash is seven, we're told that Jehoiada summoned his courage to muster the Levites and the Jewish leaders to overthrow Athaliah and establish Joash as the rightful king of Judah. And they are successful. Athaliah, during this process, becomes dead, uh, as does the priest of Baal. And there's, uh, at this time, in addition to the temple to Yahweh in Judah, there's also a temple to Baal uh, in Jerusalem as well. And uh, during this time, the temple is destroyed, the temple of Baal is destroyed, and the Levitical priesthood is reinstated at the temple. So that's the, that's the background, that's the bloody background of Joash uh, coming to life, of surviving, and then coming to the throne. So now we come to chapter 24, which is the, tw- which is the chapter we're looking at. Let's read the first three. Um, let's re- uh, look at the first three verses here. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibia. She was from Beersheba. Throughout the time of Jehoiada the priest, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. Jehoiada acquired two wives for him, and he was the father of sons and daughters. So these first three verses is a synopsis of Joash's life, and I want to spend just a few minutes here on these first three verses. So Joash is seven when he becomes king, and he's going to reign for a good long time. He's going to reign for 40 years, but at the time his people don't know that. The people of Judah doesn't, do not know that he's going to have a long reign that will bring stability to the country. Theirs has been a time of tumult with unpopular monarchs and short-lived monarchs, and their new king is in first grade. Um, in the United States, you have to be at least 25 years old in order to be a congressman or a congresswoman. You have to be at least 30 years old to become a senator. You have to be at least 35 years old in order to be the president. But in the dynasty of Judah, there are no minimum age requirements. So, when it comes to the kingdom of God, this is encouraging. When it comes to the kingdom of God, we need not worry about the age factor when it comes to our monarch or our leader. We need not worry about the inexperience of youth or the weakness of advanced age. Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, is ageless, he's eternal. He is, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, he is the king, eternal, immortal. Of course, in Joash's case, while he's seven years old on the throne, he has uh, people in the background who are advising him and who are helping him. And the one we know about for sure is Jehoiada the priest, who is a good man. Verse 2, then, is both encouraging and unsettling. The encouraging part is that we read that Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. Not since Jehoshaphat has there been a king like that. Not Jehoram, not Ahaziah, not Athaliah. In fact, of the 42 kings who ruled over, you're just really excited about all this history, aren't you? Right? Of all of the 42 kings who ruled over Judah and Israel, only 10 were described as those who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Joash is one of them. But then there's this, this qualifier, this unsettling part in verse 2. Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight throughout the time of Jehoiada the priest. Does that mean that when Jehoiada leaves the scene, Joash doesn't do what's right? And we want the biblical writer to say, no, 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 that's not, you misunderstand me, that's not what I mean. But in fact, that is exactly what he means, as we'll see shortly. The parallel verse in 2 Kings talks about Joash, and the parallel verse is helpful here in terms of what Jehoiada did. It says, Throughout the time Jehoiada the priest instructed him, Joash did what was right in the Lord's sight. This verse makes explicit that Jehoiada is intentionally instructing Joash during his reign. Uh, you know, and he's teaching him, no doubt, about life. He's sort of the father figure in his life. He's teaching him about being a king, no doubt. Uh, what it means to be a king in Judah. And he's also, um, as a devout priest, Jehoiada will also be teaching Joash about the law of Moses and what it means to be God's people and what it means to be the leader of God's people. And then verse 3 tells us that uh, Jehoiada found two wives for Joash, and he had children. We've come up against this uh, issue of polygamy before, uh, just recently. Um, And I will just... uh, Put it in context for you, not justifying it. the Scripture doesn't justify it, but put it in context for the situation here. Their context, their world, is a dynasty. Joash is at the end of David's dynasty at this point. He's the only living male descendant of David. His brothers are no more through violence. His uncles are no more through violence. His great-uncles are no more through violence. They have all been eliminated successively, first by grandpa, then by enemies, and then by his dear, sweet grandmother. (laughs) Producing heirs is probably high on on Jehoiada's mind, and of course, Joash is only seven at the moment, so the dynasty is going to hang by a thread for quite some time. Then we come to verse 4. Verse 4 says, Afterward, Joash, when he was older, took it to heart to renovate the Lord's temple. The temple has been neglected and plundered um, at this point. If you look at verse 7, we're not going to read this whole section, but look at verse 7. For the sons of that wicked Athaliah broke into the Lord's temple and even used the sacred things of the Lord's temple for the Baals. So the sons of Athaliah, before they were uh, no, no longer alive, uh, the sons of Athaliah had plundered the temple and had taken stuff out of it in order to service the temple of Baal. Joash wants to restore the temple to its former glory, and that's what verses 4 4, 4 through 14 are about. He takes it in mind to renovate the temple of the Lord. Worship of the Lord is important to him at this point. This is a good thing. He wants the worship of the Lord to proceed as it should, not just for him, but for the entire nation. In fact, he gets frustrated in the account, in the parallel account in 2 Kings. He gets frustrated with Jehoiada, Because the progress on the temple is going so slow, and he sort of lights a fire under Jehoiada to get the temple renovated and completed. Well, eventually um, Jehoiada dies at a very old age. Look at verse 15. Jehoiada died when he was old and full of years. He was 130 years old at his death. He was buried in the city of David with the kings because he because he had done what was good in Israel with respect to God and with respect to his temple. So the question for us is, with all that training and instruction and role modeling and and being an example to Joash um, during those many years, um, how does Joash fare after Jehoiada's passing? Well, let's look at verses 17 to 19. However... After Jehoiada died, the rulers of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king, Joash, listened to them, and they abandoned the temple of Yahweh, the god of their ancestors, and served the Asherah poles and the idols. So there was wrath, this would be from God, there was wrath against Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Nevertheless, he sent them prophets to bring them back to the Lord. They admonished them, but the people would not. Listen, Joash and his people abandoned the temple. And this is ironic, given the sustained effort that Joash had taken over a period of years in order to renovate the temple, in order to make it what it was, uh, what it had been originally, so that they could properly worship Yahweh there. In response to this, God sends two things to Joash and his people. Uh, He sends wrath in verse 18, and wrath... Uh, often in this context would mean the withdrawal of the hand of blessing in the sense of crops. Uh, you know, it, it would probably involve famine, um, but it, it would also mean uh, more enemies, uh, less protection from the Lord and more enemies coming in. So he sends wrath, but he also sends prophets in verse 19. And the purpose of these prophets is to bring them back to the Lord. That's what verse 19 says. So God is both angry at this time and merciful. He's angry and merciful. But the people and Joash, according to verse 19, would not listen. Well, it gets worse. Verse 20. The Spirit of God took control of Zechariah, son of Jehoiada the priest. He stood above the people and said to them, This is what God says, Why are you transgressing the Lord's commands and you do not prosper? Because you have abandoned the Lord, he has abandoned you. But they conspired against Zechariah and stoned him at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash didn't remember the kindness that Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had extended to him, but killed his son. While he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and demand an account. One of Jehoiada's sons, Zechariah, prophesies by God's spirit that the reason that all the bad stuff is happening, all the troubles they're in now, is because Judah has abandoned the Lord. And so Joash has Zechariah killed. They stone him. There is so much sad irony here that the, that the text highlights. And we can think about the fact that Jehoshaphat rescued Joash from being killed and now Joash executes her son. Jehoiada had done everything for Joash, and now Joash executes Jehoiada's son. Jehoiada had taught uh, Joash all about the Lord, and Zechariah now comes to remind him of the things of the Lord, and Joash responds by killing him. Zechariah is killed in the courtyard of the temple, the very place where Joash had been rescued in chapter 23 by Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada when Athaliah was on her um, spree. Verse 21 speaks truly. King Joash didn't remember the kindness that Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had extended to him. Well, let's finish out the chapter, verse 23. At the turn of the year, an Aramean army went to war against Joash. They entered Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people among them and sent all the plunder. To the king of Damascus. Although the Aramean army came with only a few men, the Lord handed over a vast army to them because the people of Judah had abandoned Yahweh, the God of their ancestors. So they executed judgment on Joash. When the Arameans saw that Joash had many wounds, they left him. Joash's servants conspired against him and killed him on his bed because he had, sh- because he had shed the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest. So he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, son of, Ammonite, of the Ammonite woman Shimeath, and Jehazabad, son of Mo- the Moabite woman Shimrith. Concerning his sons, the many oracles about him, and the restoration of the Lord's temple, they, recorded, they are recorded in the writing of the book of the kings. His son Amaziah became king in his place. So Joash is wounded by his enemies, but he's finished off by a conspiracy, which is... Ironic and also, uh, you know, a kind of tit for tat justice, a kind of appropriate justice in a sense. Um, Zabad and Jehozabad conspire against him. In verse 21, we read that Joash and the people had conspired against Zechariah. And by the way, note that word sons in verse 25. Joash shed the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest. So we're led to believe that more than Zechariah died at the hand of Joash. Joash, the God-worshipper, has become Joash, the apostate. One other note, too, uh, historical note, Joash, is, Joash has started a pattern here that's going to continue. Um, his son Amaziah did good, did right in the eyes of the Lord for a while, but towards the end of his life he uh, faltered. He fell and he would not repent. There's a difference between falling and repenting and falling and not repenting and then his uh uh his grandson joash's grandson uzziah king uzziah will do the same thing he did good for many decades but at the end of his life he became proud he fell and he would not repent and that's the pattern i want to think about today because it's a recurring pattern throughout church history in the first century paul lamented that demas loved the world and deserted him um, Alexander and Hymenaeus in, in First Timothy had shipwrecked their faith, and today there are, are there are those who walk away from the faith they prof- profess. They become disillusioned and they fall away for whatever reason. Um, they deconstruct their faith is one of the popular terms today. Even Jesus had followers who fell away. Uh, you know, we think of Judas, of course, but then there's this passage in John 6:66. 6, From that moment, whatever moment in the ministry of Jesus, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied Jesus. Of course, the percentage is small of professed believers who fall away, but we don't want to be part of that percentage. So here's the question I want us to think about today. How do we guard against falling away? Proverbs 23, one of uh, Pastor Ryan's favorite verses, guard your heart. Guard your heart. How do we guard our hearts? People who have loved the Lord have turned away from him. Solomon did that. Joash did that. Let me give you another example, a modern day example. Some of us attended a prayer conference uh, last month, and the speaker's name was Bill Eliph. He was a pastor. Bill tells the story. He grew grew up in a Christian home, his dad's name was JT. JT was a pastor, and JT retired from pastoral ministry. And then at the age of 65, J.T. broke with the Lord, he divorced his wife, and he married another woman. And one can imagine the shock that went throughout the family, all of them following the Lord, and it went throughout all the churches he had ministered in before. Well, J.T.'s wife's name was Jewel, and Jewel prayed continually for him and his new wife. And the short version is uh, a few years later, uh, JT sought Jewel's forgiveness which she readily gave and his repentance then was deep and lasting so that's a that's a happy resolution to a, a tragic story we don't have that happy resolution with Joash the JT went on to eventually tell the story of his fall and of God's mercy to thousands of pastors in multiple venues and he usually began his message with this statement and said no man can rise so high That he cannot fall. And no man can fall so low that he cannot rise by the grace of God. It's the first part of that statement um, that's our concern today. No man, no person can rise so high that he cannot fall. As the Apostle Paul puts it, therefore let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. Let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. So how do we watch out that we do not fall? How do we remain steadfast? How do we persevere to the end of our lives in faithfulness to the Lord? Uh, Three questions for reflection. The first one is this. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? In verses 17 to 18, Joash listened to the rulers of Judah. He listened to the rulers of Judah, and they led him away from the Lord. In verse 19, Joash wouldn't listen to the prophets. He wouldn't listen to the prophets who would have brought him back to the Lord. Who are you listening to? That's a question we have for our kids, right? That's a question we have about our, our children. Who are they listening to? Um, has the voices of others, of those who don't follow the Lord, of those who ignore the Lord, neglect the Lord, have the voices of, uh, you know, uh, anti-Christian, anti-Christian voices on social media or, the, or anti-Christian voices in the university or whatever, have they become louder to them than the voice of the Lord, than the voice of those who would sharpen them and point them towards faith? We think about that over our children, but the question is, who are you listening to, too, you know? Peer pressure, listening to voices, being influenced, isn't just a teenage thing. It isn't just a college student thing. It's, we listen to others, and the question is, who are you influenced by? This doesn't mean that we cut ourselves off from those who don't know Christ or those who don't uh, know that Jesus is their Savior. We don't do that, but the question is, which way does the influence go? Of course we're to be with others. Of course we're to serve others and love them and witness to them and so forth. But who are the ones who are pouring into your life? Let's put it this way. Is there someone in your life who has a negative impact on your faith? Who dismisses your passion for the Lord? It's not wrong to talk with anyone. But if there's someone who is influencing you to become less enthusiastic about the Lord to become more passionate about other things than the Lord, then it's wise to consider how that relationship needs to change. Here's another question. Is your faith your own? Is your faith your own, or is it someone else's? As children grow up and leave the home, you know, that's a question we have. Are they living on their parents' faith, or are they living in the strength of their own faith? From just the few f- details of his life that we have, I wonder if Joe Ash ever internalized that faith in God. He did the things that conformed to the Hebrew faith, but what was going on in the inside? You know, I remember when I was growing up as a teenager, uh, as I transitioned into college, I remember some of the steps. I, uh, I re- you know, for a while, I was living on the strength of my parents' faith. And I prayed to receive Christ when I was a young young child. Um, but I was living on the strength of their faith for a while, and there had to be a point, or there had to be it was a process of me taking steps and sometimes missteps in uh, in terms of that faith becoming my own. Is your faith your own? Is it internalized? You know, you come you come to church on Sundays, you come to church on Sundays, and you greet people, you smile, you sing the songs, you listen to the sermon. Say goodbye to people, you leave, you go home happy. I hope you're happy, but uh, go home. So, you know, you've been inside the physical church building, you've connected with the people of the church. Have you connected with the Lord of the church? Have you you communed with the Lord? Have you communed with God? Have you genuinely worshipped him? Jesus quoted Isaiah, he said this, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. This isn't true of you, is it? Yours isn't just a lip worship, is it? It's a heart worship. You know, living in a garage doesn't make you a car. Walking onto a football field doesn't make you a football player. Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian. There's got to be, there's got to be faith. There's got to be trust there. Next question is this, what are you doing to remain steadfast? What are you doing to remain steadfast? What do you do intentionally to grow in the Lord, to maintain faith? uh, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter says grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do you do that? How are you doing that? What are you doing to do that? Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Rehoboam was the king. And uh, his, his epitaph uh, at the end of his life read like this, according to Second Chronicles 12, he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Why did he do evil? Because he didn't pursue the Lord. He didn't actively pursue the Lord. He didn't set his heart on pursuing the Lord. I bet he was in temple every Sunday, Saturday. It would be Saturday. <laughs> I bet he was in temple every Saturday. But he didn't set his heart on pursuing the Lord, and he did evil. So as I was just thinking about this last question, you know, what are we what are we doing to remain what are you doing to remain steadfast? I'm going to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter two. Colossians two six, page ten eighty-four in your pew Bible. Colossians two six. This passage came to mind as I was thinking about this last question. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. This passage describes someone who is steadfast in Christ. They're rooted in Christ, you know, like a tree. They're being built up in Christ, like a, like a solid building. They're established in the faith. You know, they're established like a successful business is rooted in a community. So how do we become steadfast and remain steadfast in Christ? How do we remain steadfast in the faith? Now, this passage, I think, gives us at least four suggestions. One is daily fellowship, walk in him. Daily fellowship, verse 6 says to walk in him. That is, conduct your life before him in relationship with him. He should be a conscious part of your day, every day. The longer you go with him, the more conscious, the more aware of him you will become at every moment of your life. Some Christians seem to live by the motto that absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> That's not the way it works in the Christian faith. It's more more true would be out of sight, out of mind. Um, we need to be pursuing the Lord, we need to be walking in Him on a regular basis. Remaining steadfast happens in a daily walk with Jesus. A second thing: daily submission, daily submission, or daily obedience. Walk in him as Lord, verse six says. As you have uh, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Christ Jesus the Lord. Some people receive Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, it seems. They're interested in the forgiveness, but not so much in the obedience or the submission. You know, the one book in the Bible here's quiz. Which book in the Bible talks about the early church, the practices and the witness of the early Christians? Acts. Good job, Karen. Uh, You get a free lunch downstairs when you're done. Uh, um, Yeah, Acts. You You know how Jesus is described in the book of Acts? He's described as Savior and he's described as Lord. How many times do you think he's described as Savior in the book of Acts? I'll tell you, it's two times. He's referred to as Savior two times in the book of Acts. How many times is he referred to as Lord in the book of Acts? It's over a hundred. Over a hundred. That's how they knew Christ as Lord. He is Savior, no question, but they knew him as Lord. Billy Graham said, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. Are we talking about perfection? We are not talking about perfection. We know that we will struggle with sin. We know that we are to continue to, to, to kill sin, to mortify sin in our lives. And, and when we sin, we confess our sins and so forth. But this... But, but this is describing a person who is seeking to live for the Lord, who is submitting to live for the Lord in his life. Steadfastness in Christ comes from walking with Christ as the Lord of our lives. It comes from daily submission to him. You know, And as you live your life this way, you will taste and see that the Lord is good. You will taste and see that the Lord is good, just like musical students who bend, their lives to the instructions of their piano teacher or their trumpet instructor or their clarinet instructor or whatever, they will eventually come to rejoice in the fact that they have submitted to the instruction of their musical teachers because they will enjoy the life that now lays open before them in terms of their instruments. It's the same in the Christian life. All right, third practice is this daily devotions, set your roots in Him. Set your roots down in him. Verse 7 talks about being rooted in Christ. In Acts chapter 24, how do we do that? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read that the first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's this passage in 2 John 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The encouragement here is to abide in the word of God. Setting aside a regular time and space to study and meditate on scripture every day. Do you know what will happen if you do this? The Spirit of God will use that to build you, to strengthen you, to establish you, and to make you steadfast. And the fourth practice is this, daily thanksgiving. Daily thanksgiving, give thanks to him. Give thanks to him. The end of verse 7 talks about overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. It's hard to fall away from the Lord if you're continually thanking him for all that he's done in your life. There's truth, there's great truth in that hymn, Count Your Many Blessings. It says, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your many blessings, and as you name them, as you start listing them, well, you're just going to keep on writing because it's going to surprise you how much... The Lord has done in your life. Being ungrateful, ingratitude, failing to thank the Lord blinds you to all the things that God has done in your life. The more you thank the Lord, the more you see the Lord's hand in your life, even in the difficult times, and the stronger your faith becomes, and the stronger your faithfulness becomes as well. Guard your heart, root yourself in Christ, abide in Christ. Joash Joash was a descendant of David. He was a son of David, if you will. He was a son of David who was fickle and he fell away. Jesus Christ is the son of David who was faithful and who continues to be faithful to this day. Hebrews 13:8. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Matthew 28, 20, He says, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. He is with you always. Keep your trust, your faith, ever resting on Christ. He is the solid rock. He is the anchor for your soul. Walk in him daily as Lord. Daily fellowship, daily submission, daily devotions, daily thanksgiving. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that uh, you know, you've called us to be steadfast, you've called us to be faithful, and you give us the power to do that. We, can't, we couldn't do that on our own. We can't do that on our own, but you have given to us your spirit. Help us not to grieve your spirit, but, Father, rather to walk in the strength and in the power of your Holy Spirit, to lean on him as we live our lives. And it is my prayer that everyone in this room, if they don't know, if they don't know you, Lord, as Savior, that they would come to you as Savior, that they would put their faith and trust in you, and then that everyone in this room would persevere in their faith, would continue to walk in, in faith, would continue to walk before you as Lord on a daily basis. We pray for that blessing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.